You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Kim Davis Circus continues. I'm not sure I want to stay inside the tent. I did enjoy, however, Mika Brzezinski's grilling of Mike Huckabee last week on Morning Joe. Think Progress wrote it up. That's where I saw it. But I enjoyed watching Mika ask this of Mike Demagogue Huckabee. Would you support a clerk? Remember, Kim Davis is the county clerk who's denying marriage licenses to same-sex couples because Jesus and the Bible, blah, blah religious freedom, blah, blah. So no marriage license for you. Would you support a clerk who would not give Kim Davis a third or fourth marriage license? Mika demanded to know. Because of course the Bible, as Joe Scarborough pointed out to Mike Huckabee, condemns divorce. Jesus Christ himself condemns divorce. Mike Huckabee refused to answer the question, tried to define it away, said it was irrelevant because Kim Davis's third and fourth marriage, adulterous though they may be, condemned by Jesus Christ though they are, between a man and a woman. So get out of biblical judgment-free card for Kim Davis and all of her many and varied spouses and marriages. Brzezinski and Scarborough wouldn't drop it though and kept going back to it. And it was just – it was nice to see it dawning on straight people as I believe it is that the same rule of law that protects the rights of gay people – That also protects the rights of straight people, protects the rights of straight people to get out of their first marriages, which is a right straight people had to fight for, just as the rule of law protects the right of straight people to their second, third, and fourth marriages, or as I'm calling fourth marriages now, the full Kim Davis. But I don't want to talk about Kim Davis. I'm actually really fucking sick of the Kim Davis circus, even though it's all unfolding exactly as I predicted it would. People are now raising money for Kim Davis. Once she loses her job, she will never have to work again. And I guess that's a good thing. We should create retirement plans for all malicious Christian bigots out there. We're winning, of course, the fight against this kind of religious bigotry. And Kim Davis isn't actually harming anyone, truly in the long run, except for her own faith, because the continued efforts of religious bigots like Mike Huckabee and Kim Davis to make Christianity and homophobia synonymous is bad for Christianity increasingly. It used to just be bad for gay people when Christians were right-wing psychotic bigots, but now it's backfiring on Christianity itself. That's a problem for Christians. Christians are going to have to figure that out and work on it. And Tolerant, loving, supportive, affirming Christians are going to have to figure out a way to steal their God back from these bigots who believe that their God is a bigot like them or that bigotry is the ultimate expression of Christian love. So Davis really can't hurt anybody. But we're all talking about Davis. I'd like to talk for a minute about the kind of bigotry, the kind of attitudes that Davis holds when they are in a place where someone can really do damage to a gay person. Those gay couples that Davis has maligned and insulted and stigmatized, they are going to get their marriage licenses in the end. They could have gotten them right away. They could have driven to one county over and gotten their marriage licenses. I'm glad that they didn't. I'm glad that they pushed this case. I'm glad that they stood up for themselves. I'm glad they fought for their right to not be demeaned and denigrated like this. As citizens of Rowan County, they should not have been treated this way. And I'm not saying that they should have driven one county over, which is what Ann Coulter said. 
I'm saying good for them, but there was nothing preventing them from getting married all along, really. And I'm glad they fought this bigotry. I'm glad they fought against this discrimination. I want to talk about this kid that I've met recently and gotten to know named Joel. I'm not going to use Joel's last name because Joel has asked me not to use his last name. Joel grew up in a really tiny town in Michigan. He was homeschooled by his fundamentalist Christian parents. When he was 12 years old, he told his parents that he thought he was gay. They packed him off to a counselor who would sit with him once a week. They would detail all the gay things he might have done that week or gay thoughts he might have had, and they would pray for him to become straight. Didn't work. Joel was always interested in dance, in a particular kind of dance, show dance, like Broadway dance, like tap dancing, show people dance, gypsy, Broadway, the great white way, that kind of dance, always interested in it. But his parents regarded, and his counselor, that kind of dance as a gay thing that Joel should avoid doing. So they refused to allow him to take dance classes, even though there was a dance studio in the tiny town he was growing up, unless he paid for it himself, which he couldn't do when he was 13, 14 years old. But when he was 15 years old, he got a job and he paid for his own dance classes. And he was so talented that his teacher encouraged him at age 16, 17, to audition for the dance program at Oklahoma City University, which is actually a really prestigious uh, dance program. I, I was unfamiliar with it until I began to look into this story. But Broadway stars Christian Chenoweth, Kelly O'Hara, they're both graduates of OCU. Uh, I talked to some people on Broadway, some Broadway people I know, and they were familiar with OCU and told me it was an excellent school and hard to get into, really competitive, only really great dancers get into OCU. And this kid, Joel, had been accepted. So he went to his parents and told them that he was going to be living as an openly gay man, that he, has a, he had a boyfriend. And then he was going to OCU to go to college and he got a scholarship. And then his parents told him that he couldn't live at home if he was going to be gay, if he was going to have a boyfriend, if he was going to dance. And so he had to move out at 17, became homeless at 17. And then according to Joel and his supporters, some women in his town that he knew, including his dance teacher, they rallied people he stayed with. His parents stopped cooperating, stopped filling out forms tried to prevent their son from going to this dance program because Jesus, because Bible, because God. All the same reasons that Kim Davis cites for denying same-sex couples their right to marry, for denying them the marriage licenses to which they are legally and constitutionally entitled, Joel's parents moved to deny him this opportunity to go to this dance program, to study, to pursue his dreams, tried to thwart it. I found out about Joel because the women who were helping him out, taking care of him, created a GoFundMe page and someone sent me the link two months ago and I went there and read about this kid and I thought it was a scam because they didn't mention the town where all this happened. They didn't mention Joel's last name. They didn't mention the name of the dance instructor. They didn't name the particular Christian church that we were talking about. But I got in touch with the person who started the GoFundMe page. I got in touch with Joel. I got in touch with his supporters. I got in touch with Oklahoma City University. I verified everything. They raised the $6,500 that Joel needed to cover the gap between his scholarships, his work study, and the rest of his tuition and expenses for his first semester with the GoFundMe page. And they did this despite the opposition of Joel's parents. While he was still a minor, at great risk to themselves, some of the women who were involved with basically rescuing Joel and helping him to pursue his dreams. So while all the attention in the world right now is on Kim Davis 
and her weaponized bigotry. This is really anti-gay Christian bigotry at its most damaging when it's weaponized by parents against their own children, which is what happened to Joel. And thank God, who doesn't exist, but thank God rhetorically for the women who've stepped up, some of whom are Christians, to help Joel out. And now I'm going to ask you to help Joel out. That GoFundMe page that was put up, it raised enough money, $6,500, to cover the gap between Joel's scholarships and the rest of his expenses for his first semester at OCU, which is a private Methodist school. And they need to raise another $6,500 to cover Joel's expenses for his second semester. Or he faces the prospect of having to leave OCU after one semester, having to return home without knowing where home is to either his parents or somewhere if he has to leave school at the end of this semester. This kid is really talented and he deserves better. There's a lot of us listening. I never ask anybody out there to make a donation if I haven't made one myself. Terry and I kicked in 500 bucks to help cover this kid's second semester expenses. If you can kick in five or 10, that would be great. And all of us together can help rescue this kid. We talk about the Duggar kids a lot, right? We all are sort of fantasizing about the gay Duggar when he comes out, that homeschooled Duggar kid. When they finally, one of them breaks from mom and dad and runs, we're going to help that kid. We're going to be there for that kid, right? Because one of the weapons that fundamentalist Christian parents use against their children is isolation, fear, helplessness. They can't make it on their own. They have no support system. And so when that Duggar breaks free, we're all ready to like help raise money for that Duggar who breaks free, right? We're all going to make sure that when one of those Duggar boys comes out and one of them's going to fraternal birth order effect, the more sons a woman has, the likelier she is to have gay sons. When a woman has a lot of sons, the likelier she is to have multiple gay sons. So there's a gay Duggar there in that bunch and we're going to swing into action when he comes out and runs. This kid, Joel, kind of a gay Duggar. And why we're not using his last name and why his last name isn't on any of the information, the GoFundMe page, which is why I thought it was a scam, because his parents have forbidden him to use his last name because they accuse him of bringing shame on their family by being gay. These people are bringing shame on themselves by persecuting, by rejecting their gay kid. And we're going to drive that point home by supporting this gay kid, by helping him out. By standing up for him when his own flesh and blood have not only failed him, but tried to destroy him. If you're mad about what Kim Davis has done, and I'm mad about what Kim Davis has done, here's one way to work through that rage. Help out this kid whose parents are essentially Kim Davis. GoFundMe.com slash Let's Help Joel, L-E-T-S-H-E-L-P-J-O-E-L, no apostrophe in let's. GoFundMe, Let's Help Joel. Before we let this go, talked about the way Kim Davis has weaponized her bigotry and her hatred and justified it by pointing to her faith. Again, nothing is more damaging than when a parent weaponizes their own bigotry, their faith, and attacks their own child. The rejection of his family has pained Joel very deeply. The love and support of the women who've rallied to Joel's side and now strangers rallying to Joel's side is helping to make up for it. So let's show this kid our love and support. Let's show him what his parents are incapable of showing him right now. Fingers crossed that his parents, like so many others, will come around one day by helping him out, by making sure that he stays in school 
where he belongs and one day gets to Broadway where he wants to be. GoFundMe.com slash Let's Help Joel. Coming up today on the Magnum, Bailey J, trans porn star and hilarious tweet star. And your questions, tons of them, coming right up. Hey, Dan. This is Candace from Winnipeg. I don't know if I'll be able to say it all in three minutes. And you probably won't get back to me, but just to let you know, it's really sad when you find your soulmate and your soulmate's not ready for you. I've never felt like this before where you've loved somebody so hard and you know you want to be with them and they're not ready yet. I am so lost. It is completely foolish. I have been single for quite a long time and have been pretty cynic with regards to love. And I met somebody about a month and a half ago and everything just seemed to fall into place and it wasn't anything that either of us were doing. It was just, it was just the way it was. And the issue is, is that he was already out of a relationship, long-term relationship that was not very good. And he told me that he um, was ready to move on. However, I had doubts because I know what it's like to get out of a long-term relationship and you have the emotions and the grieving process that you have to go through. But he kept on reassuring me that no, he was, he was done. It was done for months or for years. And then I guess they um, had to do some splitting of assets and they got to talking and not that he wants to return to her, but I guess all the emotions welled up. And um, he just put a halt to having a relationship with me um, because he says it's not fair to continue something when he's, you know, all of a sudden these emotions have come up. Oh, but it's still really hard because I really want to be with him. I've never felt like this before with somebody. <laughs> And it's so heart-wrenching. When people say, I've never felt this way before about a relationship that ended before they wanted it to end, especially when it ends after a month or a month and a half, as this one caller did, the unspoken second half of that sentence is, or the fear, the second fearful half of that sentence is, I've never felt this way about anybody before, dot, dot, dot. And usually what's not said, but strongly implied and felt is I may never feel this way about anyone else again. And that's just shitty thinking that the lesson in I've never felt this way about anyone else before is not, and I will never feel this way about anybody else again. The lesson is never felt this way about anyone else before, but clearly I have this capacity to feel this about someone and that I felt it about this person that a month in, a month and a half in, I really didn't know that well. That I've invested this person with, with, this, with these hopes, with these dreams, with these expectations that were then thwarted because the relationship was terminated early. The lesson there isn't I can never do that again. The lesson there is I did that and I can do that again. The lesson is you have this capacity to love, to form this bond, to feel this way, that those feelings are in you. And that a person, not just this person, but a person can bring those feelings out. 
Right. So if this guy doesn't circle back to you in a few months time, as he licks his wounds from the end of this previous relationship, if that is legitimately the reason why he ended it with you right now and not just an excuse to end it, not just a white lie, but if that is legitimately the reason and he fucks off for a few months and then calls you back and wants to pick up where you left off, you can pick up where you left off with him in the interim. You have to assume you're never going to hear from him again and put yourself out there and meet other people confident in the knowledge that you have this capacity to form this sort of bond, to feel these feelings, to become attached to someone, to love someone. That is the takeaway here. Not that he was your soulmate. He was not your fucking soulmate. You have no fucking soulmate. You know who your soulmate is? You. You are your soulmate. We are each of us alone, individually, our only fucking soulmates. That is an artificial, idealized notion of what partnership is. You do not merge with someone. You do not share a soul. That is an ooey-gooey, valentine compliment that you give someone. It's a rounding up. I'm rounding you up to soulmate, which is this idea, this ideal that every one in every relationship falls far short of. But I am going to call you that as an honorific and treat you that way so that it so, so that our bond is strengthened by that lie we're telling each other about what we mean to each other because we mean something to each other but words fail us and when it comes to talking about relationships we're not allowed to say i mostly kind of feel really good about you most of the time which is the best you can do really that's love like most of the time i don't want to kill you most of the time it's fun to be with you most of the time i enjoy being with you some of the time i fucking want to kill you Please listen to the more you love someone, the more you want to kill them from Avenue Q. Everything you need to know about human relationships, you can learn listening to musical theater. It's a great song. And it really captures what love and affection is like in a long-term relationship. And it doesn't feel like souls that have merged. It feels like weasels locked together in a box some of the time. So there is no soulmate. There is no the one. There is the point six four that you round the fuck up to one, which is an act of will and self-delusion and a compliment and a favor that you do for someone else and they do that compliment. They, they give you that same compliment and do you that same favor. And there's no fucking soulmate. And he wasn't – you were with him for a month, a month and a half. You invested in him very heavily. You say you've been single for a while, probably why you invested in him so heavily. He came along and you were elated and you were full of hope. For this, and it's crushing that it ended so quickly. But you can't know after a month that he was the one, or the point six four that you were going to make into the one, or the good enough that you were going to call soulmate as a compliment. You were still discovering things about him, and he wasn't around very long, so you didn't discover. You weren't around each other long enough to figure out each other's faults, the things you didn't like about him, the shortcomings that you were willing to overlook the prices of admission that you were willing to pay to be with him. You never got to that messy, gritty, dirty, compromise stage of the relationship. So all that you can see right now are your shattered hopes for this perfect relationship that didn't exist and wouldn't have existed if he had stuck around. And if he circles back to you in three months or six months time after he's healed from his past relationship, isn't going to exist going forward. If indeed you go forward with him. So here's what you do. 
eat some ice cream, go to the gym, see a bunch of movies, hang out with your friends, wallow in your grief as you are wallowing. Have a nice wallow and then knock it off. Give yourself a month to grieve this relationship that only lasted a month. And then get out there and do shit. Don't get out there and look for another man. Get out there and be in the world and exist in the world and move through a world that is full of men and women. And perhaps you'll meet somebody else, perhaps not, but you will be active and engaged and enjoying your life, whether you're with somebody else or not. And then see where you go. See what happens. Enjoy your life, single or partnered. That is the message that I'm constantly trying to give to everyone, whether they are single or partnered. Enjoy your life as an individual because you may be an individual again, a single individual again at some stage in your life. There are no guarantees. Pianos fall from the sky. And someone who woke up this morning married may go to bed this morning widowed. We all have to have lives for ourselves that are worth living and that we enjoy and that are rewarding whether we have a partner or not. And if you're not going to have a partner for now, have a life that's worth living. Do the things that give you pleasure. Be out there in the world. You'll meet somebody else or you won't, but you will be living a life that is rewarding and enjoyable. I'm sorry you're in so much pain. I ache for you. I'm sure lots of people out there listening ache for you. Lots of people out there listening have been where you are right now and are now with new loves or not but have gotten through this pain and are living lives that give them pleasure and bring them joy. You have to build that life for yourself, whether or not that guy, this guy is in your life or not. Even if he was still in your life, it would still be on you to build that life for yourself that brings you joy. Dan, my wife uh, just recently stepped outside our marriage and had sex with someone else. I knew that this was coming because for a long time, for many years, we've been married 16 years, or 11, together 16, and I knew that her sexual needs were greater than I was either able or willing to meet. My reaction to it, I'm trying to be open-minded. I didn't get angry at first, but what I would like to know is I would like to find a place with more information or as much advice on having an open relationship while married. I don't have the confidence to sleep with other women uh, at this point. I, I don't know if that's ever going to be a possibility for me. I mean, obviously, it's, it might be something interesting, but I just want to know how to get a handle on this and keep my own emotional baggage from causing me to destroy or step on her uh, well-being if we are going to continue to have this kind of relationship. I do view it as somewhat positive. Uh, she's getting what she wants, and it actually is kind of hot. I'm thinking about her being with other people, so, you know, there's that. Um, anyway, just any advice you could give me, I'd appreciate it. Thanks. Well, you get a gold star. I think you are reacting to this news in a, a really mature and even-handed and thoughtful way. My advice for you would be to read Opening Up, a book about open relationships, including uh, Opening Up a Marital Relationship by recent Lovecast guest Tristan Taramino. It's an excellent book. You can also find a sex-positive, open relationship-positive therapist or counselor to have a few sessions with through ASECT, which is the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. 
asec.org. That's their website. You can go there and search your area and find a therapist who isn't going to be a sex negative, monogamy obsessed nutbag who just sex shames your wife and I don't know, cuckold shames you. Uh, a lot of people feel that when someone is cheated on, that there is the proper response. There is the way they are supposed to react to that news. And if you fail to react with anger and hurt and threats of divorce or actually filing for divorce, you are letting down the side. You are undermining the importance and centrality of monogamy and the monogamous commitment. And so you are obligated to, you know, we tell people who've been cheated on, not just that they have a right to be angry, but they must be angry. But not everyone has that reaction. And sometimes people who don't have that reaction wonder what's wrong with them. And there's not always something wrong with you. It's not a sign that you're damaged or that there's a fatal flaw in your marriage if you don't care that your spouse sleeps with other people. Even if you found out in this way where it was not discussed in advance, where it was technically and officially cheating, you recognize that there is a disconnect in your marriage, that you have never been able or willing, that you added that as I think kind of telling, to meet her sexual needs. And eventually, I'm sure if we got her on the phone, Eventually in frustration and despair and after working at it for a very long time, which is almost usually the script, she went and found or stumbled over without actually looking for someone else and went for it. So what do you do going forward? You say you don't necessarily want to sleep with other women. You also say, very interestingly, that it turns you on the thought of her being with other men and that could be a good thing. You know, sometimes in the wake of an affair, please watch Esther Perel's uh, recent TED Talk, Rethinking Infidelity. It's an amazing, uh, mind-blowing uh, <laughs> piece, blowing the minds of a lot of people who haven't thought about this stuff at the length that I've thought about it. Already been viewed more than two million times on YouTube. Go watch it. I think it'll help you. Sometimes an affair repairs a marriage. Sometimes an affair saves a marriage. And we never hear about it those kinds of rescues. When an affair destroys a marriage, we all hear about it. When an affair helps the marriage, we rarely hear about it because usually the couple doesn't run around saying he cheated on me or she cheated on me and things are much better now because we opened up and we were brutally honest. And it just felt like at that moment that we found out there was nothing we couldn't say because we were staring into the abyss, right? It was going to be over anyway. So I just laid it all out on the table and that brutal honesty, that process of working through the news of an infidelity often restores a relationship, brings a couple closer together. Esther talks about it, uh, Ms. Perel talks about it in her TED Talk. Watch the video. Go to YouTube right after you listen to the podcast today. You don't have to let this destroy your marriage. You don't have to be angry. You also don't have to fall for the sort of everything has to be, you know, the ice cream has to be equally divided for the children into two bowls. If one person in a marriage sleeps with other people, the other is not obligated to sleep with other people as well. If you are content to be monogamous while your wife is not monogamous and even though that turns you on a little bit so there's something in it for you too, you don't have to sleep with other women if you don't want to. Some couples have an arrangement where one is allowed to sleep with other people and the other isn't allowed to sleep with other people because it turns the one who isn't allowed on to know that the one who is, is sleeping with other people. So there's something in it for both of them, right? And if that, what can seem from the outside unfair, but if you peel it away and really think about it, it is kind of fair because everyone is getting cranked up. Everyone's getting what they want and need. And 
getting something out of this deal, it's legit. So keep talking to your wife. You're not doing this wrong. I think you're doing this right. And I think your relationship is a good candidate for perhaps an uneven kind of openness where your wife sleeps with other people and you can perhaps if you want to, but you don't because you're not interested in sleeping with other people. Place to start, again, opening up. Tristan Termino's really terrific book on open relationships and a counselor, a few sessions with a counselor that you find through asect.org. Hi, Dan. My name's Kyle. I'm 27 years old and I live in Seattle. I'm in an open relationship with the man of my dreams. But that being said, my boyfriend's really fucking hot and has lots of opportunities to sleep around. And that's okay under the guidelines and everything that we have set up in our relationship. But I'm not okay with it. Uh, for the first time in my life, I found the man of my dreams, and I don't want anybody else to have him. How do I cope with the fact that my super sexy 42-year-old boyfriend is getting a lot of tail, and I don't necessarily want to step outside the relationship to get tail. I'm getting everything I need from him. Also, another piece of information, I've been out since I was like, oh, I don't know, 10. He just came out in his late 30s. So I guess sexually and by gay years, quote unquote, I'm much more experienced than he is. So I've kind of drained the gauntlet, so to speak. Paraphrasing Obi-Wan Kenobi. This is not the boyfriend you're looking for. You say he's the man of your dreams and then you say... That it's an open relationship by what you suggest is mutual enthusiastic consent. And then you say you are not okay with this. You are not happy in an open relationship. That you do not want to share him with others. And so this is not the relationship you're looking for. This is not the man of your dreams. The man of your dreams would be very similar to this guy perhaps in many ways. But not interested in having an open relationship. So you either accept that he is going to sleep with other people and reconcile yourself to that and incorporate that into your dream relationship or you end this relationship because it's set up now to make you jealous and miserable. Uh, you've agreed to something that isn't what you want in order to keep him, which is not always fatal but often fatal. And I don't think you should do that. I think you guys perhaps should part as friends and he should continue to gain the experience that he lacks because he didn't come out to his late thirties, but you know, he may rack up as many sex partners in the next few years as you've had in your long out life and not be ready to settle down or be monogamous because he may not want monogamy. So even if he ran around for a year and got tons of experience, he's not then necessarily – I predict he absolutely is not then going to want a committed monogamous relationship with you or anyone else. So I think this is really, to use that hoary old term, a deal breaker and you should regard it as one. What he wants and what you want are kind of in conflict, kind of mutually exclusive to be happy with him. You don't want to share. You want a monogamous, closed relationship. And to be happy generally, and he'd like to be happy with you, he wants, requires an open relationship. One of you loses in that. One of you has to pay the price of admission. 
The thing about the price of admission, like you say, oh, here's this thing I don't like about my partner. kind of drives me crazy. I am willing to pay the price of admission. I'm willing to accept that thing to be with this person because otherwise they're so awesome. The, the other thing about that is once you pay the price of admission, you shut up about it and you stop bitching about it. And you try not to let it bother you. You try to, you have to roll with it. You have to say, I've accepted this. This is my, I own this. I take responsibility for this. I'm not going to be bothered by this because I paid the price of admission and I'm going to ride the ride. So if you can't not be bothered by him sleeping with other people, you shouldn't be with him. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25 year old at risk youth. I've been in a relationship with my current girlfriend for two years now. And I'm positive that she is the one I'm going to marry. But uh, I'm in a bit of a pickle. I want to have an affair. Not just to like, not not to find someone new, but to experience what the affair feels like, that thrill, that rush. You know, I've always been a good boyfriend. I've always been a good guy. And I've never done that. And the women that I've dated have done that to their boyfriends. And I have friends that have done it to their girlfriends. But I haven't personally done it myself. So I talked to my girlfriend about it. And she, of course, is against, you know, any kind of open relationship. But I just don't know what to do. I just want to do it just to see what it's like. But I'm also scared to actually do it because I've never done it before. So I don't know what I should do. Should I just move on and be excited, be happy with my girlfriend? Or do I try and do it like the true affair style and have, and have it done in secret? The rush. You mentioned that you are really aroused. I think aroused would be the right word to use. By the thought of the rush of cheating on your girlfriend. That... The excitement of doing this thing, of doing something behind her back, of doing something you're not supposed to do, that that fascinates you, that arouses you, that turns you on. There are studies that show that some people have risk-taking personalities. They engage in risk-taking behaviors and there is strong correlation between risk-taking personalities and a desire to engage in risky behaviors and cheating because that's a very risky behavior and it's erotic, right? It's hot that risk-taking behavior. And some people really get off on the idea of getting away with something. It's not just the sex. It's not just the opportunity to have sex with somebody else, but the transgression of having sex with somebody else when you are not supposed to, that it's an affair, that it's cheating, that it's not permitted. You get credit for talking with your girlfriend openly about this impulse. You went to her and said, I sometimes, you know, I know friends who cheated, had affairs, and there's something about that that turns me on. And she's like, nope, not going to happen. Not interested. And my advice for you, now that you know this about yourself, right? You, this is something you know about yourself, that you were turned on by the thought of cheating. The thought of that kind of transgression is erotic to you. You have that kind of risk-taking personality. My advice to you would be not to marry someone or be with someone for the long term who is very invested in perfectly executed strict monogamous behavior over the multi-decade course of a long-term committed relationship because the chances that you will break that person's heart are pretty high and there are plenty of women out there who do not value perfectly executed strict lifelong monogamy over the multi-decade course of a relationship or are into – open relationships or DADT relationships where she will turn a blind eye if you have a discreet affair in exchange for you doing the same if she has a discreet affair. 
that you can find somebody that you're more compatible with when it comes to sex, desire, openness, closedness, transgression, cheating, whatever you want to call it. But hey, what if she is the one or the 0.67 that you're going to round the fuck up to the one? Is it worth leaving her just so that you could have an affair one day with a clean conscience because you're with somebody who has given you permission in advance or has affairs herself or it's an open relationship? That's your call to make. Is this price of admission, a price of admission that you are willing to pay? Never getting to experience cheating, having an affair, fucking somebody else behind the back of your partner, never getting to do that. If you could set that aside for her, if you could see yourself paying that price of admission to be with her and she's worth it, then pay the price of admission. Then you say, this is something that always turned me on and I will never do. And you will be one of the many, many millions, hundreds of millions of partnered people in the world who are turned on by the thought of cheating, but who don't act on that thought because they have made monogamous commitments that they are endeavoring and struggling to honor. So you won't be alone in that. The world is full of people who have sexual fantasies, strong, compelling, arousing sexual fantasies that by dint of circumstance or personal choice, they can never realize. Hi, Dan. I am a straight 24-year-old female living in the Midwest, and I have a question about porn. As I said, I am straight. My only question comes from the fact that I pretty much exclusively watch girl-on-girl porn, lesbian porn, and I'm not really sure why this is. I have never had a lesbian experience. I have never experimented at all physically with women. I'm not particularly interested, but I have attempted to watch straight porn and that also doesn't interest me. So I'm wondering how normal this is and if there's any explanation for why it is that me, a very straight female, watches exclusively lesbian porn and I enjoy it. We've talked about this uh, a bit on the Lovecast recently and not so recently. There are women out there who are straight, who have no desire to be with women, desire to be pussy, who like watching lesbian porn. And there was a Reddit subthread created by a bunch of straight guys who were coming out about the fact, at least to each other and anonymously on Reddit, that they like to watch gay male porn. There's a lot of lesbians out there who like to watch gay male porn too, which is kind of crazy. And you like what you like, what turns you on, turns you on. You shouldn't waste too much time stressing about it. But I have a theory and I just wanted to throw this out there, just another theory, about why lesbian porn turns uh, some women on. And I want to tie it to something that a lot of people have observed about straight porn, men and women having sex on the camera for almost entirely a straight male audience. And you would think that the dick, if you're making these videos, if you're creating this pornography for straight guys, the dick wouldn't be so prominently featured, right? But a lot of straight porn is all about the dick. It's all about the cum shots. It's all about worshiping the phallus. And the dick is really the star. You know, the female porn star is the star. They make a lot more money, blah, blah. But the dick is so central in porn created for straight guys. And what I think is going on, you know, straight guys are living vicariously through that dick. They are projecting themselves into that dick. But straight guys are aroused by witnessing the arousal of that guy there that they wish they could be. But they're getting a cue from that dick about the attractiveness of this woman, about the hotness of the situation that goes beyond just vicarious living through that dick, right? I think that they are aroused by witnessing straight male arousal. 
And what I think may be happening for some straight ladies who really get off on lesbian porn is you are much likelier to see in lesbian porn made by and for lesbians, not that horrible lesbian porn made for straight guys. You are much likelier to see an actual aroused woman having an actual orgasm and less likely to see the sort of the dick is the main event and the dick is the main star and more likely to see a woman's pleasure put at the center of the action and more likely to see and live vicariously through the pleasure that these women are deriving from each other and from their bodies. So just like those straight guys out there watching straight porn that has a lot of dick at the very center of it or living vicariously through that dick, it may be that all you straight ladies out there who like lesbian porn, your pussies are living vicariously through their pussies and you are aroused by that arousal by witnessing it, by experiencing it vicariously. Anyway, just a thought. Hey, Dan, I am a lesbian from the Midwest and I listen to your show every week. I love it, love it, love it. Um, been listening for several years now and you've definitely opened my eyes to a lot of things. And one thing um, that I've been really listening closely when you answer calls is when you talk about poor judgment. And I'm afraid that I have poor judgment. I just got out of a three-year relationship with a wonderful woman. I love her still. And I just felt like every decision, everything that I did was wrong. Like I was making a bad choices. Here are some examples. So after we broke up, I had to get a new car and I bought the car that she and I had talked about getting for, for the, for about a year. And she got so upset with me that I bought the car that we had talked about getting that she had initially wanted really badly. Um, so that's example number one. Example number two, I wasn't going to be working at her restaurant. I, I do something seasonally during the fall, winter, and spring. And then during the summertime, I was going to work at this restaurant. And she was upset that I was still thinking of doing that. And I was thinking of doing that because it was close by, because like, I knew the manager there. It just seemed like a really good situation. The hours were great. They would be really flexible. I had just said I was thinking about it. She got really upset. There's example number two. Number three probably was bad judgment. I was sending her dirty pictures in emails because we had been intimate and it just, I started doing this after we broke up and it made me feel really empowered and sexy. And she got really upset that I was um, offering myself on a platter and she didn't feel like she could um, follow through with that. So those are my three examples. There are plenty more when I have felt like I've made bad choices. Do I have poor judgment? Can you help me please? Um, I have a very successful career that's Going, it's just going wonderfully, but I just I just feel like a really shitty person <laughs> and that everything I do is wrong. You may have poor judgment, but I don't think that's the issue here. The issue here is you are being an asshole to your ex-girlfriend. You say that, you know, she was a wonderful woman. You say, I love her still. And then you go on to cite, you say you're going to cite examples of your poor judgment. And I naturally assumed you were going to cite examples of judgment calls you made while you guys were still together and that contributed to the end of the relationship somehow, that you fucked yourself out of this relationship with somebody that you loved with a wonderful woman because you made stupid, bad, shitty choices and she felt in the end she had to dump you because you are a habitual bad choice maker. This is something I talk about a lot on the show and I never really hear anybody else talk about it 
anywhere else. And I think it's something that people look for in someone they want to be with for the rest of their life, whether or not they can articulate it. You look for someone who's got decent judgment. You don't want to be with a train wreck who's making terrible choices all the time that you're going to have to run after them and clean up their messes. You want to be with somebody who is not an idiot, not self-destructive consciously or subconsciously. But the choices you cite are not bad choices you made while you were together that convinced your girlfriend that you had bad judgment and so she dumped you. The choices that you describe are all choices you've made after the breakup that taken together could be perceived by your ex-girlfriend and by your sex advice podcast professional as slightly stalkery and harassing. Now, the car thing is weird. Like you're allowed to get whatever fuck car you want and your ex-girlfriend isn't allowed to have an opinion about that and that she wanted the car first. That's just petty bullshit. But that coupled with I'm going to work at the same restaurant that you work at and we're going to have to spend time together because I love you still and you're a wonderful woman to sending her dirty emails after the breakup. That's just wrong. I don't care that sending your ex-girlfriend dirty emails, sexting her, sending her dirty pictures made you feel empowered and sexy. It's harassment and it ain't okay. That doesn't – you know, there's poor judgment in the mix there, but what's really the most prominent feature of that choice is assholery and issues about boundaries and respect. The relationship is over. You want to feel sexy and empowered? Find somebody else to send your dirty pictures to. Somebody who wants to see them. How about you start there? Somebody who's asked you to send them your dirty pictures. Somebody who is either in a relationship with you or wants to be in a relationship with you or get on Tumblr and share your dirty pictures with the world or at least with people who go to your Tumblr blog to see your dirty pictures. Don't send them to your ex-girlfriend. That's not okay. That's like somebody's ex-boyfriend sending her unsolicited dick pics. It's harassment. It's stalkery. It is bad judgment, of course, but more importantly, it is an asshole choice, an asshole move. It is sexual harassment. You need to set the ex-girlfriend down and back the fuck away from the ex-girlfriend. You need to disentangle. I realize that you're lesbians and this is not something lesbians typically do well with an ex, but at least at the beginning of your post relationship, relationship, you need to get the fuck away from each other for a while. You need to let the emotional wounds cauterize. Maybe you can be friends and work in the same restaurant a year or two from now, but not right now. So stop sharing with her the details of your automobile purchases. Start looking for jobs at other restaurants, other part-time gigs you can get. Then her, her restaurant, let her have that restaurant and stop sending her dirty pictures. Stop being an asshole. Hi, Dan. This is Lindsay. I'm a 35-year-old, heteroflexible, I suppose, uh, female, uh, ringing from London. And I've got a situation. So I've got this new boyfriend, and we've been seeing each other for a couple of months now, I suppose. And he's so nice. I mean, he's just so unbelievably nice and he can't do enough for me and he just wants to make me happy all the time and as long as I'm happy he's fine he would drive anywhere for me be anywhere for me he's just like he couldn't be more attentive you know and lovely and respectful and all of that sort of stuff and the sex is great 
um, in that, you know what I mean, like I really enjoy it, I feel really respected, I feel really cared for throughout. I definitely had, you know, experiences totally the opposite. Um, so it's really, really nice. I'm coming, which is great because I've had relationships where I haven't been able to come and it's really, really good. And um, so that's all great. But the thing is, it's like, he's so, so, so nice. And like, for some reason, I just find it so annoying. And like, so this morning we're in bed and like, you know, I thought he was asleep and we're kind of do you know, spooning or whatever. And like, I'm reading my book and I'm struggling to kind of keep it open a little bit because it's a big book. And then the next thing, this like hand comes around and he's like holding half of my book. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's just like, just trying to help you, baby. You know what I mean? So you can read your book. And I'm like, get the fuck off my book. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, leave me alone, you know? And it's just like, you know, why am I allergic to this guy being so fucking nice to me? And like, is there something wrong with me, basically? That like, or more to the point, like, am I doomed to being in a relationship with a fucking asshole, basically? Like, do I need a bit of a dickhead you know, to keep me interested. I did say it to him today and just say, like, listen, I feel under pressure, you know, that, like, I'm the centre of attention all the time and, like, I need to cool your jets a bit. I just feel, like, too doted on and I'm like, isn't that what I'm meant to, I'm supposed to want? I am looking for somebody that's with the last guy I was going out with was married and, like, you know what I mean, just awful in bed and I just wanted to be super glued to his face and looked after him so much so yeah does lust and love come together why are you allergic to this guy being so fucking nice to you I think I know why because I can project myself into that situation with that kind of a guy with him watching you all the time primed to leap in and offer his assistance and help to draw attention to his affection for you and what a great guy he is to be under that kind of constant scrutiny is fucking exhausting right that's what's going that's why it's annoying because it's not that he's considerate and takes you into consideration and helps out where he can it's that he's a pest and that kind of pesty helpfulness we call that uh, – Terry and I call that aggressive hospitality in reference to some friends who are too aggressively hospitable. You can't be with them without feeling like, ah, they're just going to keep helping and offering and helping and offering and you have to deflect and deflect and deflect. It's exhausting, right? Hi, friends. I hope you're not listening to the podcast. It's pesty. So what you need to say to him is chill out. I, I am not a helpless little butterfly. I don't need to be taken care of every fucking second, right? I can hold my own book and have a laugh about it. Maybe this is something that you can – work with and help him to see and work around. He wants to be considerate. One way that you can tell him to be considerate of you is to not constantly be helping you in ways that you don't need help. It's not like he's watching you move a sofa without lifting a finger. It's not like he's watching you move a sofa without leaping into help. You're an adult woman. You can hold your own book open. Even if that means you need to disentangle from the cuddle that you're in with him to prioritize the life of your mind at that moment and read a goddamn book instead of spooning with him, you can handle it. And I think, you know, when a guy treats a woman like this, part of what informs it or part of what queers it for the woman or makes her feel uncomfortable about it is being treated like a helpless child who needs a man to rush in at every moment and wipe her ass for her. And you just need to tell him at those moments when he treats you like that, stop, don't treat me like that. Not a helpless child can hold my own book. Say that enough times, 
And then praise him when he does leap in to help you move the sofa. Thank you for your help. That was appropriate. And you should be able to make a better boyfriend out of this guy who sounds like a pretty decent fucking boyfriend already. I don't think this is price of admission stuff. I don't think this is stuff you have to learn to live with or should learn to live with. But I do think that this is stuff that you can correct by drawing his attention to it. And drawing his attention also to the sexism that most likely informs it. Good luck. Hello, all. I have a question about blowjobs and cum. I really enjoy giving blowjobs as a turn-on for myself and obviously for my partner, but I do not like the taste of it. It really makes me my stomach turn, and it feels funny in my mouth. Is there any tips that you can give me, Dan, to help me kind of get over this so I can enjoy this common practice that everyone seems to do so much better than me? Thank you. Nobody likes Guinness the first time they drink a Guinness. Come, like Guinness, is an acquired taste. And sometimes the only way to acquire a taste is to regularly and routinely taste that taste. So give it a try. See if you can't acquire a taste for semen. And I think that's what we're talking about here. It's not the taste of dick that you mind, not the very subtle pleasures or very subtle presence of pre-cum. I think what you're talking about ingesting and having in your mouth is ejaculate. Come, semen. Not everybody likes it. There's some people who have an allergic reaction to particular people's semen because of enzymes and craziness uh, and, and will have diarrhea or terrible gas or upset stomachs after swallowing cum. You're not obligated to swallow your partner's cum. You're not obligated to swallow your partner's cum anyway. But certainly if you have an allergic reaction to your partner's semen, you're not obligated to swallow your cum. I've also gone on the record multiple times with this and there are guys out there who think I'm crazy or I'm destroying blowjobs for everyone everywhere. But I am of the opinion that once the guy is coming, your work as blower is over. You have given them the blowjob. They have had the orgasm. How you choose to dispose of their semen is up to you. And swallowing, if you don't want to swallow, swallowing is extra credit. You can swallow it. You can pull a stick out of your mouth and point it over your shoulder. You can let him ejaculate in your mouth and let it run out of your mouth and back onto his lap or onto the floor or whatever. You can spit. Yeah, you don't have to have that in your mouth if you don't want that in your mouth. It doesn't turn you on. Now, some people, it really turns them on to have their semen ingested. So you could take that into account. Like part of me giving you this pleasure is me gobbling up your spunk. But it's a sacrifice if you don't like it. And it's, of course, not an obligation at all, period. Certainly not if you are sickened by it. But if it's just a taste you're not quite used to, that's something that you can overcome. You can't make semen taste like frozen vanilla yogurt. That's never going to happen. But if you're blowing a guy who drinks nothing but coffee and alcohol, smokes cigarettes, and eats nothing but Burger King and Taco Bell, his semen, like his saliva and his sweat and everything else, is going to taste terrible. But if you're with somebody who has a decent balanced diet, drinks a lot of fresh water and juice every once in a while and isn't all coffee, cigarettes, and fast food, his semen is going to taste loads better. So there's two approaches. Work on his semen, change his diet if he's got a shitty diet and keep ingesting it for now and see if you don't, a la Guinness, acquire a taste for it. Hello, Dan. I'm a straight male, 22 years old, and I'm dating a transgendered woman. Uh, we've been dating for about five, uh, virgin on six months now, and we, the relationship's really good. Uh, we really, really like each other. And we feel like we have something special here. 
she's within a year of her transition. She's a year into it. And they've just uh, increased her estrogen intake. And her libido has dropped dramatically. We used to have a lot of outer sex because anal sex is difficult for us. But right now, every time I try to turn her on, it works. But she doesn't, we, we can't take it to conclusion because her libido isn't high enough and she's uh, not into it, I guess. And I was wondering if there's any way to combat this. Uh, my libido is, a, I don't know, a fairly average one. And we really like each other. And, like, this isn't really a deal breaker. But I would, I'd like to be able to make her come. Joining me by phone to help answer this question, Bailey J, trans porn star and occultist. You can check her out at her website, www.ts-baileyj.com. And you should follow her on Twitter because she is hilarious on Twitter and smart and informed. You'll find her on Twitter at, at @baileyjtweets. Hey, Bailey, thank you for jumping on the phone. Hi, that was a really good introduction. <laughs> you want me to do it all over again? Because I, I follow you on Twitter. I like that. I'm following you for a long time and you're great. And I love your I love your handle. I feel like I shouldn't read it out loud. Why don't you read it out loud? Your Twitter bio. Yeah, uh, rebel a rebel without a cunt. Yeah, rebel that would be uh, that's what I'm looking at right now. Rebel without a cunt. Yeah, it it, I, it popped in my head one day. I think I <laughs> tweeted it, and someone someone's like, "How is that not your bio?" And I was like, "Oh, that's solid." That could be my bio too, technically. Yeah, right. Okay, you fall in that category. <laughs> okay, so this guy, straight guy, 22 years old, and isn't this the new model straight guy we want to see more of in the world? He's dating a trans woman. It's not an issue. He's not having a crisis about whether he's straight or not. I, I was not surprised that he was younger. Why would, why, why would that be, crucial, do you think? Well, because, okay, I do transsexual porn. And when a 55-year-old sees me in public and recognizes me, it's like his life is crashing around him. And then when a 22-year-old recognizes me, they're in front of their their coworkers, and they're like, oh, my God, Bailey J., my favorite porn star who has a penis. Uh-huh. So it, it, there's a huge generation. So when I, it makes sense that he's 22 because he's just so not super neurotic about the fact that he's sleeping with a trans woman. How long ago did you transition? I was 18 when I started hormone therapy, and I'm 26 now. So the thing that he talks about, uh, what, he, what he's noticed, that, that, that his girlfriend recently increased her estrogen intake and her libido has kind of cratered. I've heard that from other trans women that I've known during their transition. Was that true for you in your experience? Did your libido take a nosedive as you upped your estrogen? Well, a thing with hormone therapy, I'm not sure how much everybody kind of knows about hormone therapy if they don't have to do it, but um, there's the estrogen supplement and then there's the anti-androgen, which is usually spironolactone for, but not everybody's on it, but a lot of trans women are on it mm -hmm. where it blocks your testosterone. So um, obviously I'm not a medical professional, but from personal experience, high enough estrogen can lower testosterone for me. That's what's happened in, in, in my body. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the libido does it, the libido changes more than it disappears for me, like my sexuality changed when I started hormone therapy, but adjusting your levels and talking to your doctor. I mean, it's embarrassing a little bit to be like, Hey, I want to be able to achieve erections, mm -hmm. but my libido didn't go away because I think there's the mental aspect of sex. And then there's the physical aspect of sex mm -hmm. and my mental capacity for being horny is so, is just so grand that I, I almost feel like I coast on that a little bit. I'm, I, I never had trouble achieving erections. Um, maybe they're not as powerful mm -hmm. uh, as they were before transition. And and uh, semen will 
not, you know, produce as much, but, um, but adjusting your level, you'd be surprised. Yeah. And people need to advocate for themselves. This is something, you know, you know, this isn't just something for trans people that they face. Women who are on hormonal birth control will sometimes see their libidos crater and they feel self-conscious about going to the doctor and saying, I need you to, we need to like think about some other form of birth control because the birth control I'm taking is killing my libido. And people really feel like they can't go to the doctor and say, I'm, I, or if you can't advocate for their own libidos and to their doctors, like that shouldn't be important. Libido is important. But it, this thing, he, he says later in the call that he would like to be able to make her come. So you just said that as you uh, transitioned, when you, uh, you know, you, you were taking your androgen blockers and androgen blockers block testosterone, which is the horniness hormone. A lot of women right. who have no libido will go to the doctor and the, what they do is they test for the presence of testosterone and if her testosterone levels are really low, below normal for a woman, that can contribute to low libido. So blocking testosterone can obviously contribute to low libido in a trans person. But he says he would like to be able to make her come. So it sounds like he began dating her early enough in her transition process that she was on not a lot of hormones or maybe not taking an androgen blocker and was ejaculating. And now that she's further into the transition, she's not ejaculating as much. Is this just a conversation he needs to have with her? Is this just information he doesn't have about perhaps ejaculation not being the be-all and end-all of sex for her anymore? Well, see, here's, here's the thing. There's, um, I think a lot of times we associate ejaculation and coming, like they're the same thing. Mm -hmm. And they're not. Uh, but when I'm fully doing my hormones the way I'm supposed to, I mean, I, I, I'm a sex worker. You know, I do adult work, so I don't not always the poster child for staying on my hormone therapy the way I should, but um, because I, there is an expectation for me to have to be very functional uh, down there. I need to, there, there's kind of a demand for me to ejaculate or have uh, an erection. And it's, but, but when I'm on my hormones the way I'm supposed to, I have orgasms better. I, there's no, there's no cum or there's minimal uh, semen, but I'm, my orgasms are longer and, and, um, I even noticed when I'm, when I'm, you know, have, you know, getting banged in the butt, uh, which is a medical, <laughs> medical term when I'm getting banged in the butt. <laughs> hey, don't get all technical on us. We try to keep it conversational <laughs> around here. It, it, but it feels, the whole thing feels like an orgasm and my sexuality morphs so much with the estrogen. And I think if there is a thing where you need to start redefining your sexuality, if you're going to be on hormone therapy, if you're the hormone therapy is resulting in you not manifesting, you know, semen, the physical manifestation of your orgasm. Um, you can still get started. I know when I am having sex and I'm getting banged in the butt that I'm fully enjoying it. And sometimes I don't even need a release. It's because I, there was this mention that maybe she's having trouble even achieving orgasm. And, and if that's something that's important to you, talk to your doctor, adjust your levels, have open communication about it because lots of trans women need functionality for a lot of different reasons. Mm -hmm. And so it's a conversation the doctor's used to having anyway. And then uh, the, the other thing is that it's, it's or, or, or just get comfortable redefining your sexuality. I know for me, I don't need the release when I'm on a lot of hormones. I just enjoy the act of sex and the act of sometimes I won't even get an erection. If I'm, if I'm, you know, getting pounded in the butt, I'm like, I'm not hard. I don't you know. Nothing necessarily comes out. There's no release, but I thoroughly enjoy the process. So maybe this is a conversation that he needs to have, not just a conversation she needs to have with, with her doctors, but a conversation that he needs to have with her and she needs to have with him because, you know, they're a year into this relationship. Sometimes people have a hard time talking with their partners about sex. We're just talking about how people can have a hard time talking with their doctors. 
people call me all the time. We have an impossible time talking with their partners. And as she transitions, the importance of an erection or the importance of climb or coming, and that was the word he used. She's, she, he would like her to be able to come. He would like to still be able to make her come. Maybe coming is becoming less important to her, and maybe it was never that important to her, but it was really important to him. And that's what they're having right, a hard right. time addressing. That if he, as the straight male boyfriend of a trans woman, was into her dick and into her ejaculating, and this is something that, as she transitions, is going to be not as frequent an, an occurrence, is that something they're being honest with each other about? That that's something he's going to have to mourn? That's not going to be central to their sexual expression anymore? That her enjoyment of sex isn't going to end with this kind of really what is what a lot of men misunderstand as the exclamation point at the end of sex like bang there was the there's the orgasm there's the come everyone's happy and right. we're done and that may be not how your girlfriend caller functions anymore right and, and, and i'm telling you as a, a trans woman who who is in the sex industry it it is a it's a balancing act. It really is a, you know it's like what's more important to me my transition and my process and my journey or you know or the functionality of my genitals when I'm actively taking medication is going to change, you know, change how they function. And and I, I'm not even saying I found that balance because I did it. You know, I, I take breaks from my hormones, which there's, you know, some people say that's not ultimately good for you. And I, I, I enjoy taking breaks from my hormones personally. I enjoy, I enjoy, it's, it's a nice change of pace. I've heard from some other women in the, who are, who are trans in the sex industry and porn that they're sometimes pressured to take a break from their hormones because the porn producers, the, the companies, they want uh, the, their trans actresses to uh, have erections, to ejaculate. And they feel that this, they, they feel pressured to do this. They feel pressured to take a break and it may not be healthy for them to do that. Is that an issue in porn? You know, I've never had an issue where someone said, stop taking your hormones. You know what I mean? There's, it's, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I'm saying it just never happened to me. It, but the pressure is there because what they want when they're, when, you know, when, when someone typically is looking at trans porn, they want someone to be ultra feminine. I mean, I'm generalizing here, but they want someone to be ultra feminine, which is the result of hormone therapy typically, but then also fully functional from the waist down and everything's just going, you know, and, and, and that's a balance a lot of women have a hard, a hard time with. I, I know with me, it's been difficult. If you look through my porn, there are times where I'm fat because of, because of estrogen therapy. There are times where I'm skinny. There are times where my penis is twice the size. And, and I, this last time I, I took a break from my hormones and my, I mean, I started getting letters because people are like, how did you make your dick bigger? How can I do this? Because it's my, my dick looked like a completely different penis. Like it, it, it was like six inches around and it was huge. And I'm mean, not to brag, but it was like, it was functioning. It was, it was on its A game. God, I'm going to call you back and, after the show and get the tips for how to make that happen to me. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure there are a lot of guys out there. I'd like to know. Right, right. And so, and now I'm back on the hormone blockers and kind of waiting for things to cool down again, because I don't want to have to pluck my chin. (laughs) (laughs) Quickly, before we let you go, uh, you were on Amy Schumer's show. You were on Inside Amy Schumer in one of her Amy Goes Deep segments. How was that? How was meeting Amy Schumer? It was great. Well, see, me and Amy already knew each other uh, because I'm I'm friends with the New York City comics. And so uh, it's funny. People kind of thought I was I went in on the show and it was like, oh, you're in the lion's den because she's feisty. And I'm like, no, I I met her at like a children's birthday party, like a mutual friend. (laughs) like. (laughs) <laughs> it's 
she's like one of the nicest, sweetest, one of the most sincere people I've ever met in my entire life. And uh, I loved the interview. I loved that she asked me very candid questions and treated me the way she treats everybody because I think that's equality. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I loved it. And so, some people were bent out of shape because she asked me about my penis. And I was like, please, I, I need to wear a button that just says, ask me about my penis. You know, can can we bond, can we bond for a second? I, I saw that you, you get grief about that after you went on Amy Schumer, and you know you had uh, Laverne Cox, her interview with Cameron Carrera and Katie Couric, where Katie Couric tried to raise the subject of genitalia, and sort of the memo went out to the whole world that you're never allowed to ask about genitalia. And I just remember, like when I started writing Savage Love a million years ago, I got a lot of grief from gay people because straight people would ask me about gay sex. How do you do it? What do you do? And what we were supposed to say back in the early days of the gay rights movement when straight people asked us what we do in bed was we read and we sleep and sometimes we make love. What do you do in bed? How dare you ask that question? And my feeling was, you know, we should just answer the fucking question because they're not going to be able to sort of put this to rest and get past it until we fucking answer the question. So when people would ask me as a gay guy, what do you do in bed? I would tell them and 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 tell them until they regretted asking the goddamn question. I would answer I would answer the shit out of the question until they were until they were like, please shut up. Okay, I get it. I get it. And it just seems to me that maybe there needs to be for trans people some designated ask me about my dick or ask me about my junk trans people in the world to satisfy these questions that so many cis people have so that then not all trans people have to ask that question or even ask the question. But there are some who can satisfy the curiosity of those cis people in the same way we needed to satisfy the curiosity to the straight people about gay sex and lesbian sex and how it works. I, I respect, I respect the people that aren't comfortable answering the question. And I wish some of them would respect the fact that I am very comfortable answering the question and that, there's nothing progressive about telling a woman she's not allowed to discuss her anatomy. There's nothing progressive about that, in my opinion. And um, it, it's I, I basically, if Charlie Rose asked about my penis, maybe I would have been offended. But I was on Amy Schumer. You know what I mean? I, I you got to judge the room, mm-hmm. and and I had and I had a great time. It was a lot of fun, and and like I said, I'm very. I look at it. Uh, Kind of like the Spice Girls, okay? It's like, <laughs> can I just be the can I just be the fun, dirty one? Like, do we all have to be a monolith? Like, can I can I just be the one that people know it's okay to ask for these questions? Because I'm I'm like the silly, irreverent one. Like, I just it, the more visibility we get, the more we'll get to be individual. I think it takes all kinds, including all kinds of trans people. Bailey J, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. That was great, and you were great on Amy yes. Schumer. And I, I thought you, you. repped your community beautifully. Uh, Bailey J, check her out at her website, ts-baileyj.com. Follow her on Twitter at Bailey J tweets. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast again. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hi, Dan, uh, hetero flexible, early thirties, married gal, been married, uh, almost four years. Uh, we decided that we wanted to try and go for threesomes. So we sort of started exploring on OkCupid and then ran into someone who was like, hey, come to our lifestyle party. And we were like, well, lifestyle is really not exactly our bag, but maybe we can meet a single girl there, find a unicorn, you know, all that. So we went to this lifestyle party and it seemed really incredibly heteronormative, like female bisexuality was really only encouraged to the extent that it, you know, made threesomes possible for guys and then improved the uh, enjoyment of the guys evening um and like you know the girls towards the end of the evening are like 
starting to like just get into my lingerie and show off their boobs. And the guys are just like still totally dressed. No male nudity. It was like very, very one-sided and just like, I don't know, like I had the impression that like the guys may be kind of homophobic even or like not down with maybe an MMW threesome kind of stuff. Um, so I don't know. I just, I don't know if that was an experience of like just this one night, that set of people or this particular lifestyle club or lifestyle in general. So I thought maybe you could have some, some insight on that for us, just kind of curious. And maybe lifestyle is a terrible place to try and find a unicorn. I don't know. Sounds like you ran smack dab into the biphobia that the organized, particularly the more established, older swinging subcultures, groups, organizations are notorious for. Girl, girl, wife, wife, girlfriend, girlfriend, bisexuality is celebrated and encouraged and and not just performance. There are certainly bisexual women in the organized, established, older swinging movement. But male, male bisexuality, not okay, not encouraged, not celebrated, which – does not mean that there aren't bi guys in organized swinging. There's just no boy-boy contact, no bi-male play in most established, older, organized swinging groups and their parties and their conventions. Why? Well, could be because a lot of these older uh, organized swinging movements groups located in more conservative parts of the country, they have their roots and their origins in uh, military subcultures, military bases, could also be uh, partly because of the HIV AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s and the threat that bisexual men were perceived to represent and the stigma that attached to male bisexuality during the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic. You have an option though. If you are looking for MMW, man, man, woman, three ways, you are not limited to organized swinging groups or parties uh, where this – Male biphobia is so prevalent. You can get involved in polyamorous organizations. You can get involved in pansexual organizations. You can go to sex positive parties and you are less likely to encounter this biphobia. It doesn't mean you won't encounter any biphobia, but you are less likely to encounter this particular biphobia about guys and guys together. Good luck. Hi, Dan. This is in response to episode 463, where you gave advice to a woman whose uh, lesbian roommate came in, sat on her bed, and then touched her. I actually wanted to call you to address a phrase I've heard you use multiple times, and most recently in your advice to this woman, go postal, go postal on his ass. You might want to do this, and then if that doesn't work, go postal. Forgive me if you already know, but the phrase go postal refers to the Edmond Post Office shooting in 1986 in Oklahoma, which involved 14 murders and the shooter's own suicide. In light of the many mass shootings happening all over the country, I think that this phrase is extremely insensitive and completely trivializes the idea of mass murder. For you to suggest that a mass murder is an appropriate way to handle a roommate with poor social skills really sucks. Clearly you're not, but whenever the phrase is used, it completely trivializes true and real violence. Don't you think we have enough pundits and news organizations doing that already? Anyway, wouldn't mind a debate on this if you feel strongly about the phrase. I mean, maybe there's something I'm missing. And sorry for scrutinizing your language. I'm sure you get it all the time, but go postal, really? Anyway, thanks again for all that you do. I'm a huge fan of yours. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 463, um, the woman whose partner was tickling her. 
Um, and this really had a big reaction with me. I hate being tickled. And the language that I always use is that it is someone else taking control of your own body's response in that moment. And it can be innocuous. It can be playful. It can be flirty. But if it gets too aggressive, what it literally is, is her partner making her have a physical reaction without her consent. And if that gets out of hand, it can be really hard and really damaging. Um, and so if she needs to use language like that, that it can get to be a violent thing. If it is not, if tickling is not consensual and playful, she really needs to put her foot down. Hi, Dan. Since you are a big pothead, I just thought you would like to know that your voice and your podcast and your books on Audible have gotten me through trimming about 50 pounds of weed this season, not too far from where you're at. You literally made me LOL. You made me tear up a couple times, but I've been on the podcast bender for a few weeks now, and I have trimmed about 50 pounds of OG, strawberry headband, sour diesel, and Girl Scout cookies. So if any of that makes it your way, maybe it came from my hands. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, please give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Hump, my amateur porn film festival, is coming perhaps all over the face of a town near you. The Hump Tour is coming to Madison, Wisconsin, Bend, Oregon, Vancouver, British Columbia, Austin, Texas, Baltimore, Maryland, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Denver, Colorado. All this fall, go to humptour.com for information on the exact dates and ticketing information and, of course, information about how to submit a film to Hump, the world's biggest, best amateur porn podcast. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Bailey J on Twitter at BaileyJTweets. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. 